Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we pray that as we open up the scriptures at this time, that you would open up our hearts, that you would do a work in us right now through the teaching of your word that have, would have a lasting impact upon our lives, not just for today or this week, but for the rest of our lives, Lord, and as it relates to our relationship with you. God, I thank you for this church body. I thank you for the privilege that you give me to, to stand before them today and to preach your, and, and teach your word. And I just ask that, that your word would go forth in power and through the ministry of your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I want to read that to you. It'll be on the screen in the ESV version. It puts it slightly, a little bit different. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And I really like the way the ESV version puts it, where it says the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is good judgment. Today we're going to be talking about what is the fear of the Lord. In fact, this will be our outline for today. We'll answer the question, what is the fear of the Lord? Then we'll talk about what does it look like in operation And then we'll talk about what can walking in the fear of the Lord produce in us. But then we'll also know what can happen if we lose sight of it. So first of all, what is the fear of the Lord? I would describe the fear of the Lord in this way. It's sort of like a two-sided coin. On the one side of the coin is a sense of reverence. It's the sense of being awestruck at who God is. It's, it's having a deep respect for God and, and His power and His glory and His awesomeness, that, that His majesty and His holiness are all wrapped up in, in this aspect of, of the fear of the Lord. But the other side of that coin would have the sense of His goodness and His grace and His mercy, and both of those coupled together give us a, an idea of what the fear of the Lord looks like in our lives or what is to look like in our lives. Now, I do think it's interesting and kind of significant that Proverbs 9 verse 10 connects the fear of the Lord to his holiness. Because having a proper fear of the Lord is going to center around the reality, this reality, that God is holy. That that is sort of the starting place. And when we talk about the holiness of God, what do we mean by that? Well, I think the holiness of God, we could sum up in the idea that God is completely pure in his being and in all of his ways. You know, the song that we read in Revelation that they're singing in heaven during the tribulation time is this song, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. The holiness of God revolves around the idea that He is completely pure, that there are no flaws, there are no imperfections in His person, His character, His dealings, or His personality. That God is not capable of evil. That he is not capable of guile. That it, that there's no aspect of him that can even move in that type of realm. The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
And attached to God's holiness is also his power, his glory, and his majesty. So when we talk about the fear of the Lord, on the one side of the coin, there is this this sense of being awestruck by the awesomeness of God. Being overwhelmed by the wonder of his greatness and his majesty. But on the other side of the coin, there is this aspect of his goodness and grace and his love that pulls us in. And that's sort of the contrast that this incredible, majestic, awesome, incredible God wants to have relationship with us. That he, in a sense, seems so incredible and that, that it would seem in our minds that he's unapproachable, but in actuality, he's, he's not. And so it, re, it moves within us a sense of adoration, of worship, of just like, I can't believe that you want anything to do with me. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. He said that the fear of the Lord, it means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, there's the two sides, You find him fearfully beautiful. I love that. Fearfully beautiful. Think of it this way. When you find yourself in the presence of someone that you revere, or someone that you are in awe of, there's a a sort of fear that's there, but it's a positive fear, right? It kind of motivates you where you don't want to do anything that would, you know, disgrace them or you don't want to do anything that would dishonor them. You don't want to do anything that would cause them grief. I remember that, that I had that sort of a, a mindset whenever I was around Pastor Chuck as I was, you know, pastoring. It's like I always wanted to, to be in his good graces. I always wanted to make a, a good impression. But I'll be honest with you, my first two encounters with Pastor Chuck happened before I became a pastor. And I really had no idea of really who he was and the impact that he had made upon the kingdom of God as a whole. And I think that was part of the beauty of Pastor Chuck, is that he always seemed so normal. But my first encounter with him was actually when I was in the sixth grade. I was 11 years old, and I was going to the school there at Calvary Costa Mesa. And it was on this particular day that our junior high flag football team, which I played on, was having a game against the church and school faculty. And so Pastor Chuck was playing in the game. He was actually playing running back for the faculty team. I was playing safety on the junior high team. And the faculty ran this play. It was a sweep right. They threw the ball to Pastor Chuck. And he goes barreling around, you know, the corner. And he gets past the line. And the only thing that that is standing in the way of Pastor Chuck making a touchdown is me, this little 11-year-old. And I get down like this. I'm waiting for him to come, you know, put some kind of move on me. And I'm going to reach for his flag. But he he didn't put a move on me. He bulldozed me. <laughs> he literally just ran me over, practically stepped on me, you know, goes into the end zone, spikes the ball. And I remember laying on my back, looking back and thinking, that's my pastor. You know, <laughs> that was my first encounter with Pastor Chuck. My second encounter came with him about six years later. I was 17 years old, junior Just had completed my junior year of high school. And the second of 
the second high school pastor in a three-year period was moving on for some reason. And at that particular time, I felt like our high school ministry was firing on all cylinders. I felt like it was, you know, the best it had ever been. It was definitely up to that time the biggest it had ever been. About 175 kids were coming, and it was so fun. And I was invested. I loved it. I was a leader in it. So I decided that I was going to go and talk to Pastor Chuck about his next hire of, of the high school ministry. So at Calvary Costa Mesa, right outside the, the center doors of the sanctuary was a courtyard. And Pastor Chuck would always end the service by beginning the benediction and then walking down the, the, the center aisle and out those doors. And he would hang out in the courtyard and people would line up to talk to him. So I stand in line. I'm waiting in line for him to come out or to get to talk to him. And I come up, I introduce myself to him and I you know, tell him who I was. And I was in the high school ministry and I said this. I said, Pastor Chuck, I just want to ask you, before you make your next hire the next high school pastor, I, I really want to encourage you to come out on a Wednesday night and just see what, what's happening, you know, see what's going on. And later I thought, how stupid, you know, <laughs> this guy couldn't hear from God, you know, about who to hire and, and being the next high school pastor that, you know, he had to come out and actually see. Well, he never came. Uh, but he did send this guy named Richard Semino. Richard Semino came out. He became the next high school pastor. And Richard um, changed the whole trajectory of my life. In fact, God used him in a way that I don't think I would even be in ministry today if it wasn't for Richard. And the moment of truth came in my life with, with Pastor Richard when he said this to me. I, he said, Rob, you know what your problem is? Jesus is just a part of your life, and he's not the center of your life. And that was absolutely true. And that was the change that really began to be a change that happened in, in my life. And so those were my first two encounters with Pastor Chuck. My next encounter with Pastor Chuck came about 17 years later. I was now the pastor of this church. And I had to meet with Pastor Chuck over uh, something that was going on. And so I drove up to Costa Mesa and I, I wait in, you know, line or I wait in, in the lobby there and they open, you know, it's okay, he can see you now. And I walk into his office. I was so intimidated because now I really knew who he was. I knew, you know, that he was this guy that, you know, had God had used in such an incredible way and all these churches had been planted and, and he had just made such an incredible impact on the kingdom. And I'd been to pastor's conferences and heard all the stories and and it was like he was legendary and I'm now coming into his office and there's a sense of awe there's a sense of respect there's a sense of man I know his time is valuable I don't want to waste his time and I remember going in thinking I just I just want to say the right thing I want him to like me I want him to and and I remember walking out thinking that did not go so well <laughs> because I felt like I was stumbling all over you know my words and I'll be honest for years I actually felt like Pastor Chuck didn't like me that much at all. In fact, and, and, and this was, I think, all in my mind, but I used to think that he actually blamed me for Pastor Brian, who pastored this church, leaving and taking his wife, his, Chuck's daughter, and his grandkids all the way to England. In fact, when Chuck, when Brian went to Chuck and said, hey, I'm thinking about going and planting a church in England, this is what Pastor Chuck actually said. 
He said, you go, leave Cheryl and the kids here. <laughs> That's what Pastor Chuck told him. So I felt like for a long time that Pastor Chuck looked at me as like the one who opened the door for Brian to be able to leave by coming here. And so I, I always had that sense of just being intimidated by him. But that fear of the Lord is that sense of being awestruck. It's the reality that, man, God is so awesome and so great and so powerful that he could absolutely crush me if he wanted to. But for some reason, he loves me. And that's the beauty of what we have in Christ. This is the advantage that we have is God doesn't just like us. He loves us and he's redeemed us and we are in this covenantal relationship with him through Jesus Christ and he has committed himself to us as his beloved children. Now notice our text again. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And when the Bible talks about the knowing God, it usually is speaking about knowing him, not just intellectually, but knowing him intimately. It's growing in our knowledge of him, but also growing in our experience with him and growing in our intimacy with him. And the more that we grow in our relationship with God in that way, the more our reverence grows the more our sense of being awestruck at who he is grows, but also the more that we enjoy him. Because it's the sense that this great and awesome and incredible and holy God has made himself known to us. And he loves us and he is with me and he is for me. And this is what I want to illustrate for you today. A couple of instances where we see in the, in the Bible this connection between the ominous side of God, the awesomeness of God, but also coupled with, and, and oftentimes they're seen just hand in hand with his grace and his love and his mercy. So would you please turn over to the book of Exodus chapter 19, where I think we see a beautiful description of what the fear of the Lord looks like in operation. Exodus chapter 19. And it's there that we see God has delivered his people from 400 years of being slaves in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 19, God is going to reveal himself to his redeemed people. And I want you to notice how he starts. Exodus 19 verse 1, it says this. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So this is exactly two months after the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. It says on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now, this is Mount Sinai that they're camped before. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say, now catch this, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. In other words, you saw my power over the Egyptians and and all the plagues and, and the way that I delivered you. You've seen my power. But then he says this, and how I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself now that picture right there is such a tender picture 
of the mother eagle carrying her little eaglets, protecting them, covering them, carrying them. This is, this is the idea. And God says, I, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, notice the language here, a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. God says, look, I've called you, I've redeemed you to be a special treasure to me. I love you. I'm for you. This is God's heart. We see the tenderness in this message. It continues. And you shall be to me, God says here, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So, so picture this. This message, it starts with a beautiful message of his love and his devotion to these people. And Moses comes down and he delivers this message to the people and the people are like, awesome, we are all in, let's go for it. But I want you to notice what happens next. This beautiful message is contrasted by ominous. It's contrasted by this sense of of awesomeness of God. How many of you were awake this morning at 4.30? And and you heard the the lightning and the thunder and the house was shaking. And it was, I I haven't heard nothing like that in California in a really, really long time. And I woke up and I heard, I thought, this is awesome because this is really going to go with my message today. And uh, I was like, this is incredible. God's given us this living illustration. I was pumped, you know, because I want you to notice what happens next, okay? Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud. And Moses, so the, the, the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. And then they will always trust you. And so Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing and be sure they are ready on the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as the people watch and mark off the boundary all around the mountain and warn the people, be careful, do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. And so catch this, okay? The Lord's descent upon the mountain was preceded by careful preparation of the people of Israel. The people had to be purified and no one could even come near to touch the mountain unless God invited them to come up. Now notice what happens next. So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship and they washed their clothes and he told them, get ready for the third day and until then, abstain from having sexual intercourse. Now check this out. On the morning of the third day, Thunder roared and lightning flashed. This is God's little picture. Like, I'm going to give you a little glimpse, but it's, but it's even greater than that. Check out what it says. And a dense cloud came down on the mountain, and there was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Our dog this morning jumped up on our bed 
and he's a little terrier and they're really anxious and he was violently shaking when when the you know thunder and lightning was going on here's all the people they're they're trembling they're standing there and they're just shaking because this is so ominous And Moses led them out from the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln. And the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. And the Lord came down on the mount, top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And so Moses climbed the mountain. So picture this. God descends upon this mountain and there is thunder and lightning and thick smoke. And there's a trumpet blast and the mountain is shaking violently. And the whole mountain is, the whole entire thing is ablaze, but it's not being consumed by the fire. It's on fire, but it's not a consuming fire. It's like it's a, a, a greater picture of what happened to Moses when he stood before the burning bush. The, the bush burned, but it didn't burn up. And that's what's happening here. Now, imagine standing there in this crowd. Imagine just being transfixed and full of awe. You've never seen anything like this before but notice it starts with this message of intimacy i've pulled you out i'm drawing you in you're going to be a treasure to me you're going to be the special people but then it's followed with this incredible picture of awesomeness this ominous picture and it's the idea being mixed together that this incredible awesome majestic holy all-powerful somewhat kind of scary god is for me and he's on my side that he's behind us the two of those pictures combine for us a great picture of the fear of the lord and this is what moses understood Moses understood the fear of the Lord was inseparable from God's promise that Israel would be his treasured possession. And a true fear of the Lord is one where you realize that you can't run from God, so you might as well run toward him. And that's exactly what Moses does. And the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. But here's the thing he wants us to understand. We who are his people, his desire in in being a consuming fire is not to burn us up. But he wants to be a consuming fire in our lives in the same way he was to that mountain, that he would burn bright in us, that he would be ablaze in our hearts. Moses realizes this. In fact, later on in the book of Exodus, we see Moses on this very same mountain Again, meeting with God. And here's his heart. Moses comes and he says, God, can you show me your glory? Can you show me your glory? You see, this is what happens when you come to understand what the fear of God, when you come to understand the knowledge of the Holy One, it creates something in you where you're like, I just want more. I want more of you. And this is Moses' heart. God, can I see your glory? And God responds to Moses by saying, Moses, no one can see my face and live. 
You can't see my glory, but this is what I will do. I will cause my goodness to pass by. And I think that's interesting because oftentimes we think of glory coupled with greatness, but here God's coupling his glory with his goodness. And he says, I'm going to allow my goodness to pass by and I'm going to hide you, Moses, in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by so you can see the backside. In other words, I'm going to give you a little taste of my glory, enough that hidden here in the rock, it's not going to kill you, but it'll give you a little bit of a taste of of, of how glorious, how great I am, but it's going to be mixed together in my goodness. And then God says this, and I will proclaim my name And this is where we see that the glory of God coupled is is linked to the goodness of God as God proclaims his name to Moses. And I want to read you this passage. It'll be on the screen. This is what God proclaimed to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, all of this is attached to his glory. And I think this is surprising to us. I think our deepest instincts expect God to be thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-relishing ruler. That's who we expect him to be. We expect the, the bent of God's heart to be retribution for our waywardness. And then Exodus chapter 34 stops us in our tracks because we see This is what's being communicated, that the bent of his heart is mercy. And his glory is seen in his goodness. Let's consider for a moment this description. God says of himself that he's merciful and gracious. These are the first words out of his mouth about who he is. God does not reveal his glory as being the Lord who is exacting and precise. He doesn't reveal it as the Lord who is frustrated and disappointed. He doesn't reveal it as the Lord who is powerful and mighty. No, the first thing that he proclaims to Moses about himself is that he is merciful and gracious. That this is his highest priority, his deepest delight. This is the first reaction of his heart. I am merciful and I am gracious. And then he says, he's slow to anger. And the Hebrew word or the Hebrew phrase literally means that he's long-nostrilled. You know what the opposite is of being long-nostrilled? Well, picture an angry bull pawing the ground. Hopefully you've never experienced this in person, but you've seen it in movies, right? Pawing the ground. His nostrils are, are breathing. They're flared. He's breathing loud. And, and this would, so to, be, so to speak, be short-nostrilled. He's, he's there ready to charge. He's ready to pounce. That's being short-nostrilled. But it says of God, he's long-nosed or long-nostrils. In other words, he doesn't have his finger on the trigger. Unlike us who are often emotional dams ready to break, our God is one who can put up with a lot. 
It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his anger. I mean, think of this. We read over a dozen, two dozen times in books like Deuteronomy, First and Second Kings, and Jeremiah that God, this phrase, God was provoked to anger. Several dozen times we read that in the Old Testament. You know what we never read in the Old Testament? That God was provoked to mercy. Or that God was provoked to love. You see, his mercy, or excuse me, it's his anger that, per, that requires provocation. Whereas his love and mercy are just pent up inside of him, ready to gush forth toward us. But you know what? I think we oftentimes would think the opposite of that, right? We would think that his divine anger is pent up and spring-loaded and just ready to gush out. And his divine mercy is slow to build. But it's actually, it's the reverse of that. His divine love and mercy are ready to burst forth at the slightest opportunity, the slightest prick. That's who he is. That's the core of his being. His anger is what has to be provoked. His anger is what has to be, to be stirred up. But then he also says, he, he says about himself that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, this is covenantal language. This is one, there's one Hebrew word underlying the English phrase steadfast love. And it's the Hebrew word hesed, which refers to God's special commitment to the people with whom he has gladly bound himself in an unbreakable covenantal bond. His, his steadfast love and faithfulness. The, the word faithfulness speaks of the fact that his love is constant. That he can always be counted on to do that which is in the best interest of his, of his people. That that's his heart. That his steadfast love and faithfulness, it's abounding toward us. And then he says this, and keeping steadfast love for thousands. And that could literally be translated for a thousand generations. That's exactly the way it's translated in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. So this is what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that God's goodness shuts off with generation number 1001. You know? Okay, 1001, I'm done. I'm tapped out. No, no, no. It means that, that this is God's own way of saying there's no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you. You can't outrun my mercy. My mercies are new every single morning. You, yeah, you can clap to that. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. But then he says this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This closing statement it's kind of hard to hear, but it's vital. And really, on reflection, it brings further comfort. When we, when we put it together, what was said before, what it's telling us this is that God, he's not a softy. In his holiness, the holiness of his character, he can't overlook sin. He can't. That wouldn't be holy. That wouldn't be just. So sin and the guilt of sin will be passed down from generation to generation. We've experienced this. 
It's been said that we feel guilty because we are guilty and we are always constantly dealing with the consequences of our sin. And yes, our sin and the consequences of our sin can be passed down from generation to generation to our children and our grandchildren. But God's goodness, this is the point. God's goodness will be passed down in a way that far overshadows and even swallows up all of our sin. It far exceeds our sinfulness. That his mercies travel down to a thousand generations, far eclipsing the third and the fourth generation. This is who God is according to his own testimony. This is who God is. In this, this moment of, of his glory and his awesomeness and, and Moses saying, Lord, can you just show me your glory? God says, okay, I'm going to give you a glimpse. And it's wrapped up in this proclamation of his name and Moses' response. This is his response. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You see, guys, when we grow in our understanding of the Holy One and how He operates, the natural response is a lifestyle of worship. It's a, it's a heart. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a, a moment in a service, but it's like, hey, I want my whole life to be about worship to you and commitment to you. Our hearts are overwhelmed by the, re- the, by the reality that, that it's this God who invites us to draw near to him and live in relationship with him. I love this definition from a guy named Jeremy Treat who pastors Reality Church in LA. He said this, I like to define the fear of the Lord as a radical God-centeredness that shapes everything else in life, that you're building your life around God. You take God more seriously than anything else, whether that's other priorities or the opinions of people in your life. And so we see this beautiful picture of the fear of God in operation there in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai. Now, I want to move forward and have us talk about what can walking in the fear of the Lord produce in us. And this is what we're going to actually take a deep dive into in the coming weeks because this is what we're told in the book of Proverbs. This is what the fear of the Lord produces in us. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs our days. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. And here's one of my favorites. Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. It's this last one that I want us to think about. And I want us to, I want to close our time by illustrating what this strength and confidence look like in a man named King Uzziah when he walked in the fear of the Lord. And then we'll briefly just look at what happened to Uzziah when he lost sight of that. So, Second Chronicles chapter 26, it'll be on the screen. This is what we read of Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah 
of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. Now check this out. Who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now I want you to note. It says that Uzziah was instructed in the fear of God. This means that the fear of God is something that we can grow in our understanding of. He was instructed in it. And so you have this really young guy, Uzziah, who asked Zechariah, this priest, if he would teach him about it. He would instruct him to walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, here's what Uzziah did. Here's what he accomplished as he was walking in the fear of the Lord. We read in that chapter that in verse 6 that Uzziah made war. In other words, Israel advanced. They were victorious as they went into battle. We also are told in verse 9 that he built towers and fortified the city. In verse 10, that he dug wells and he nourished and refreshed and replenished the city. In verse 11, we're told that he built up the army. In verse 13, that it was built up to three, over 307,000 soldiers. And in verse 15, that he trained this army to be this special fighting force. Uzziah did all of this walking in the fear of God. So under the fear of the Lord, people do brave things and big things for God. Because they're moving in a sense of confidence that this great and awesome God is for me. And he's with me. And he's behind me. That if God is for us, who can be against us? When I understand that it's this God who is awesome and ominous and glorious and holy, he loves me and he's for me. It gives me a confidence that, hey, I can go forth and do whatever he's calling me to do. And that's what Uzziah did. And Israel flourished, and, and Uzziah flourished. But then this happened. Verse 16 says, But when he was strong, he grew proud. Note that. To his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated, set apart is the idea, to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. But then it says this, then Uzziah was angry. He's not liking this. He's not digging this. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry, I'm not listening to you. Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of the Lord. Here's what happens. Uzziah gets puffed up. And now he's overstepping. Now he's taking on things he's not supposed to take on. He's he's wanting to act in, in the role of the priest. He's thinking more highly of himself. He's not walking in the fear of the Lord. He's thinking, I can do this. I'm a somebody. I don't need a priest. I don't need a mediator. And he's punished for this. Because the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. 
And Uzziah is punished and eventually dies. Why? He lost sight of the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, oh, he's doing incredible things. In the fear of God, he's moving and God's using him in incredible ways. But the minute he gets to this point where he's like, I, you know, he's not walking in the fear of God. He's thinking more highly than he ought to think of himself. He's lowered because God places more responsibility on leaders. They're judged with a stricter judgment, the Bible says. But I want to give you one more picture of this combination of, of the glory and awesomeness of God coupled with his goodness. Because we read in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 6, that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah the prophet saw the Lord sitting on his throne, being high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, he, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Check this out. When Uzziah died, Isaiah gets a picture, this vision of God on the throne. Uzziah was a great king. You could say that Uzziah made Israel great again in his reign of 52 years. But you know, it was during that time people had kind of lost sight of the Lord. And when he dies, Isaiah the prophet sees God. He has this vision of God on his throne. And, and his glory is filling the temple. And the natural response of the angelic beings are crying, falling down. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And I want you to notice Isaiah's response. It says, verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is brought face to face with his sin and his shortcomings. He's undone in the presence of God. And this is the initial reaction of the fear of the Lord. I, I guarantee you this. Rapture happens today. We're in heaven. We're standing before the Lord. Not one of you are going to say to God, Hey dude, how's it going? No. We're going to be on our faces. At the awesomeness of who he is. The glory of who he is. And this is Isaiah's reaction. This is, his, this is his response. But then I want you to notice the grace. That this picture, this image coupled with grace and the subsequent, subsequent response of receiving the grace of God. Verse 6, again, it'll be on the screen. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and having in his hand a live coal which had been taken with the tongs from the altar and touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. This awesome, almighty, ominous, glorious God moves toward Isaiah in love and mercy and grace when, when Isaiah is brought into this 
picture of seeing God in all of his glory. And notice the response. It says, And I also heard from the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And here we see another beautiful picture, healthy picture of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah is blown away by the majesty of God, but he's not running away. He's blown away by the majesty of God. He's touched and, and, and brought to you know, the realization of, of his own sinfulness. But he's not running away as he's touched by also the grace of God coupled with, because glory is connected with his goodness, that Isaiah's heart is, hey, I want to be on your team. I want to be a vessel. I want to be one that you can use. Lord, here I am. Send me. And this is the fear of the Lord. This sense of, I'm nothing, God's awesome, but he's also approachable. And so I want to draw near to him. One final thought. In Exodus 34, we see God proclaims his name to Moses. Of everything that he is. As showing him an aspect of his glory. And we see the greatest fulfillment of, of that picture in the person of Jesus. Who we're told in John chapter 14, it says, And the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. And this is what he was full of, grace and truth. Mercy and justice. And we see the most beautiful picture of those two things coming together at the cross. When Jesus is taking on the sin of the world, paying the price for all of our wrongdoings and all of our sin, and at the same time, he's declaring and showing the grace of God. He's, he's showing that, hey, sin has to be atoned for. There's a price for sin and rebellion, but there's also love and grace because I'm doing this so that I can live in relationship with you. And how awesome is that, church? Father, we love you, and we thank you, God, for loving us. And as we come now into this moment, Lord, as we have looked at and thought about and, and as we've just considered this beautiful picture of this two-sided coin of the fear of the Lord, of your awesomeness and your, your glory and your holiness on the one side and your grace and love and mercy on the other. And we, we're walking, we're coming to a sense today that this is who you are. And it's you, this awesome, incredible God that invites us into relationship that invites us to be on your team that we can know that because you are with us and for us who can be against us we thank you God we praise you